Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the recent U.N. climate change report. Also going to be talking about how the U.S. military machine exploits poor and working class people to advance imperialism. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Yes, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, did issue a report that is sending shockwaves through the environmental community and should be sending shockwaves through everyone else's community, but only the people who actually care about climate change seem to be concerned. And that's a shame because we're in trouble, folks. Deep, unavoidable, society-changing, cataclysmic trouble. And it's not just the poor countries that we already see are experiencing the effects of climate change, the more frequent and more intense rains that lead to floods and mudslides in places like India and Africa, you know, the places where we look at these things happen and smugly and ignorantly think, oh, well, they lived in huts and hovels anyway, so their infrastructure wasn't going to protect them. No, but see, now the ravages of climate change are being experienced in highly developed countries like Austria, Belgium, Croatia, Germany, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and Italy. Since July 12th of this year, unprecedented flooding has taken the lives of 229 people across those countries as a result of the extreme rains that produced the unprecedented flooding across Europe. And that's just in Europe. Not even talking about what's been going on in the United States. One of the survivors of the floods in Germany is quoted as saying that this is the kind of thing you'd expect to see in poor countries. It's not supposed to happen here. But see, climate change doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care that you live in a country that's considered a developed nation. It doesn't care about your country's GDP or your country's geopolitical positioning. Climate change is affecting and will continue to affect us all. But I think environmentalists have been characterizing the fight against climate change a little bit incorrectly for quite some time. You see, in discussions about curbing pollution, chemical and nuclear waste, fossil fuel consumption, and all of the destructive extractive methods that produce it, people have been saying that we need to do these things to save the planet. But honestly, the planet will survive just fine. It is us, humanity that we need to save. But it's hard to save humanity when we humans have behaved so incredibly inhumanely toward not just the planet, but toward every living thing on it, including ourselves, and behaved that way, especially toward some humans who have tried to warn the rest of us about the very same issues raised in the IPCC report that are causing the drastic changes to our climate and societies that we're experiencing right now. Actually, people have been raising the alarm about the damage that burning fossil fuels would do to the environment for centuries, dating back to 1856 with Eugene Foote, an American scientist and 
just happened to be a women's rights campaigner who published a paper that for the first time suggested that carbon dioxide was a key component in warming the planet. But, you know, because she was a woman, all the smart male scientists scoffed at her little paper and ideas and ignored her. And then in 1959, John Tyndall, an Irish physicist, showed how only small quantities of water vapor, carbon dioxide, and other gases could change the planet's temperature. In 1896, the Swedish scientist Svante Arrhenius was the first to prove the link between carbon dioxide to the greenhouse effect. In his paper, called On the Influence of Carbonic Acid in the Air Upon the Temperature of the Ground, he doesn't explicitly link the burning of fossil fuels to climate change, but he does indicate that fossil fuels are carbon-rich, so he noted the potential for climate change destruction through the burning of those entities. And he did make that direct connection between burning fossil fuels and climate change in later work. Then in 1912, an article was written by Francis Molina titled The Effect of the Combustion of Coal on the Climate, What Scientists Predict for the Future, was published in Popular Mechanics magazine. In it, there is an ominous-looking picture of an industrial plant with multiple smokestacks spewing gray or black billows of thick smoke. The caption underneath this picture reads, The furnaces of the world are now burning two million tons of coal a year. When this is burned, uniting with oxygen, it adds about seven million tons of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere yearly. This tends to make the air a more effective blanket for the earth and to raise its temperature. The effect may be considerable in a few centuries. Now, you may think that this indicates that the author is issuing a warning of the damage to future generations of humanity due to the burning of fossil fuels. But when you read the article, you see that what's actually happening is what I think has always happened when the pursuit of industrial progress under capitalism becomes more important than science that reveals the damage that progress is doing. In the very same article, the author says that the changes to the atmosphere that the release of carbon dioxide will cause will actually not cause harm, but will ensure that men in future generations can enjoy milder breezes and live under sunnier skies. That's what he says in the article. Why? Why, because it's the brains of the courageous, enterprising, and ingenious Americans who are making this positive change for the world by burning fossil fuels to make the world warmer. And then the author goes on to say, even the dull foreigner toiling away in the mines to produce the fuel to feed the consuming furnaces of modern industry that's dumping all that extra carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, well, even they realize they're able to feed their families by doing that and warming up the earth for future generations to enjoy. That's what this author said about the effect of burning fossil fuels on climate change. It was framed as a capitalistic benefit. And honestly, this is no different from ExxonMobil covering up climate change research 40 years ago so that they could keep making money off of, guess what? Burning fossil fuels. A lot of people are referencing that caption from 
that Popular Mechanics article and taking it completely out of context. And that context is important because this has been the stumbling block to implementing any real solutions to addressing climate change ever since the issue was raised centuries ago. Commerce, industry, and capitalism control the narrative. So we have to start putting saving people's lives at the center of climate conversations and policies, just like we have to do when we are trying to fight for change for everything else in this world. It is people at the center and people first. Follow Lukeman Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we are now happy to be joined by Max Ogil, a member of the Committee of Anti-Imperialists and Solidarity with Iran and author of the new book, A People's Green New Deal. Max, thanks for joining us. And Max, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of the United Nations has released uh, a pretty bleak report here as it concerns the uh, climate situation here I mean, on Earth, frankly, and a number of points I think could be touched on here sort of generally speaks to, you know, rising temperatures and rising sea levels, threats to coastal areas, uh, barrier reefs. It notes that uh, the past five years have been the hottest on record since 1850, uh, with the recent rate of sea level rise uh, being nearly tripled compared with the period between 1901 and in 1971, and obviously the the human aspect of this in terms of how it drives a climate change is obviously undeniable here, and I think has been some time. Uh, I mean, you know, UN Chief Antonio Gutierrez called the report a code red for humanity, saying, quote, if we combine forces now, we can avert climate catastrophe. But as today's report makes clear, there is no time for delay and no room for excuses. And he then called on different government leaders and stakeholders to try to make the upcoming COP26 uh, climate summit a success. I believe that's going to be happening in Glasgow. And, you know, Max, I feel like this report really just sort of confirms what I think a lot of us uh, knew about the the severity of the climate situation and the threat that it really serves to humanity. And, and sometimes I don't know if people really grasp the different uh, uh, trickle effects that this will be beginning to have. I mean, already in different parts of the world, there's issues with scarcity uh, of water. I mean, this is the sorts of thing that can intensify conflicts. I mean, there's a lot to say there, I think. But I'd like to begin really by asking you two questions. I mean, number one, what are some of your just top line thoughts in uh, reading this report? And what do you think it means to really begin to move towards a, uh, a mitigation of some of this in a critical way? So there's two things that are fundamentally important. The first, and it actually is almost counterintuitive, is that essentially there is nothing new in this report other than the scientific language is getting ever and ever closer to certainty. And this is just because of the conservatism in science, that you see changes in report from report to report, with each one saying we're more certain about what they call the human impact, although this is a big problem, uh, 
on each kind of indicator of climate threat. So it's very important that people keep in mind, not out of a sense of, oh, it's nothing new. That's not the point of saying that it's nothing new. The point of saying it's nothing new is that the ruling class has known exactly what has been going on for a very long time. So it just can reaffirm to us that they don't care. Right. And this is very fundamental for people to understand that there is no concern about the impact of these catastrophic threats on most of humanity, even though most of humanity is not emitting barely any carbon dioxide whatsoever. So this is very important to understand in terms of going forward. I mean, it's also very much testament to the fact that we need to take the same steps we took. We should have taken five years ago, 10 years ago and 20 years ago that you need a hard cap phased out on fossil fuels. You need uh, income statements, uh, income uh, stipends paid to people uh, in the North who will probably face increasing energy costs. And you need climate debt payments paid to uh, global South governments that are sitting on top of fossil reserves in addition to the climate debt payments owed to all the global South governments so that they are able to continue to provide for their people during an immediate transition. So that's like a, a rough and ready, dirty program for getting through the crisis. Everyone should check out the book of Stan Cox, who really laid out the details from a technical perspective about how to accomplish this in the United States. And, you know, Max, I, I like that you pointed out that, you know, most of humanity is actually not the ones who are emitting uh, the carbon dioxide that's killing us. It really is a few hundred, if that many, corporations that are responsible for the climate change that we can't avoid now. Because I think people are having this conversation in the context of, oh, what can we do to avoid climate change? It is unavoidable. We are in the midst of climate change. And, you know, people didn't care when uh, the ice was melting in Antarctica and the pictures of the skinny polar bears were broadcast around the world because people figured, most people, especially in this country, figured, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me. You know, people didn't care about the deforestation uh, of, of massive rainforests in uh, Brazil and in other parts of the world because they figured that didn't have anything to do with me. But an interesting thing happened in Germany with the cataclysmic floods that recently occurred, one of the uh, victims of the uh, floods was interviewed and she said, this is not the kind of thing you expect to happen in this kind of country. You expect this kind of thing to happen in poor countries. Max, is the conservatism not just in science, but, it, but in the way we regular folks respond to climate change, a result of that same small group of people basically indoctrinating us to believe that, you know, we can we can change this by recycling individually and, you know, buying green products individually. And this is largely a problem with poor countries with bad infrastructure. Do, do you see a, a strain of that in this lack of response to this issue? You know, I think there's a lot going on in terms of what are people's thoughts about climate change. Uh, let me talk more specifically about, about the United States. Uh, you have a segment of the population that doesn't believe it's happening at all, 
right? You have a segment of the population that believes that, okay, we can definitely solve it with these new technologies that are coming online. It's going to be carbon scrubbers. It's going to be nuclear. Uh, we have the technology. The technologies are very close. We're going to be able to roll them out in time. It's not a very big deal. Other people are have been somewhat dubious about it because there's been a propaganda campaign, primarily coming from big oil, but also in which the big capitalist newspapers have been very complicit, saying, okay, there's there's the denialist and then there's the scientists. So we have to have these two perspectives, right? So the big capitalist newspapers have been very complicit because they have a community of ruling class interests with the oil companies historically, right? So there's also this going on. There's also what's going on is that a lot of people in the U.S. are suffering a lot uh, and a smaller portion is really on the brink, right? So what is a more immediate threat? A more immediate threat is getting uh, housing, getting money for housing, getting a decent job, getting health care, right? Uh, because if you know, if you think you're not going to survive your next uh, flu or your next uh, broken arm without going into bankruptcy, it's, it's a little harder to worry about climate, which has seemed a little far off. And even when it's not so far off, because even when people are experiencing it, they're not experiencing it in the same way as these kind of economically and therefore socially devastating uh, economic, economic welfare things. So there's this too, right? And there's an, another thing, which is that in spite of all this, even before this report came out, a lot of people are worried about the climate, in fact, and would love for there to be a feasible program. I mean, that's why the, the Green New Deal with its uh, huge imperialist flaws and so forth, it resonated with people because people are worried about the climate and people are worried about what kind of planet will be suitable, uh, not necessarily for them, but also for their kids, right? It's a very normal human response. So I think the the atmosphere is, is really right for people to move on it. I mean, this could uh, surprise people, but over since 2017, I believe, uh, climate change and the environmental justice uh, issues have been, for example, one of the top concerns in the Democratic Socialists of America, right? It took a while for them to get moving on it. But that's a that's a substantial cut of the population, right? Uh, of in terms of mass mass leftist organizing in the United States, rather. So I think there's a, a range of consciousness, and I don't think we can reduce uh, we can reduce it to any one thing. Yeah, and I appreciate you sort of raising how the issue has been um, popularized and how more attention has been paid to it by more organized groups, particularly more progressive. Uh, left-leaning groups in recent years, Max, because, I mean, ultimately, that seems like that's where uh, a lot of the, the the real change, a lot of the sort of drastic measures in terms of the pressure for making them happen will really have to come from that kind of uh, organized movement effort towards uh, a lot of these things. And, and I'm also wondering about something you mentioned a, a moment ago when you talked about how, you know, it, it, it's a lot of the, the major governments on Earth that are producing a lot of, you know, the, the the issues that contribute to climate change and a lot of these problems that we're speaking about, uh, a lot of the, the wealthier nations like, you know, the United States and um, others. And, you know, it, it makes me wonder about, you know, something I know you discuss a lot and that you've touched on a little bit here. And that's the question of um, a climate debt. So, I mean, help us understand just exactly, you know, what that is and the role that that, that it plays in this broader issue. Right. So climate debt goes back uh, in, in its taproot uh, over uh, around 30 years, this idea from 1992 in the Rio summit, where they came up with this idea of common but differentiated responsibility, which is common in the sense that everybody has to do something. 
right? And everyone, I think, can get on board with that. Differentiated in that what everybody has to do and the kind of responsibility that people have to do something is different. It's differentiated according to class power, basically. Uh, They wouldn't use such words, but that's actually what it comes down to, right? So climate debt was basically a formalization of this idea They came from uh, the global south with uh, Bolivia playing a major, major, major role in pushing it forward, which is, of course, why one of the reasons why it's on the U.S. target list. Right. And it's this idea that the northern countries have done a lot to the environment and in terms of using fossil fuels. And for this reason, they owe resources to the southern countries. So there's a couple of ways they've done it. One the northern countries have used up all the safe atmospheric space, also oceanic space, because the oceans are a major carbon dioxide absorber, for carbon dioxide. So we're already over what uh, the natural systems can kind of safely metabolize, right? So that's all been used up primarily by the northern countries and a bit by China, right? That's one thing. So the southern countries have lost their space, right? That space has been enclosed. And then the so-called externalities or the waste products of capitalist production have been dumped in there, right? That's one thing. So they're owed restitution for the use of that space. But it's more than that, right? There's also this question of adaptation and mitigation, uh, which means that these countries have to adapt to ongoing and future damages, which are already baked in. So in order to adapt and uh, to these uh, to the changing climate, in order to mitigate the effects of uh, rising sea levels uh, and, um, and other kind of perturbations, they also need resources directly from the north. They need massive payments, right? And this also takes on a particular uh, salience when we talk about things like the, the fossil fuel reserves, which are primarily located in the south, right? Like Venezuela is going to need payments if we want it and uh, at some point to stop burning or stop extracting its fossil fuels, uh, then it's going to need to be indemnified, right? Because otherwise it's just going to get into even worse poverty, right? So this is is a primary issue, which is often uh, neglected. The U.S. can, can in essence, stop extracting its fossil fuel. And economically, it's okay. And it wouldn't sure would pay off its own corporations very quickly. But of who's going to pay the brunt of that is going to be countries like Trinidad and Tobago, Ecuador, uh, Venezuela. And then there is, so then there, there's the quantity, right? And the quantity is why people aren't talking about it, right? And not only is it why people aren't talking about it, but the people aren't going to mention numbers, including a lot of the progressives. Why? Because we're talking about a revolutionary shift in resources, right? So what uh, what the Cochabamba People's Agreement, which everybody should check out, just plug it into Google, Cochabamba People's Agreement, you will have a crash course on uh, Global South political ecology and environmental crisis, and I recommend it, it should be read by everyone listening to this. Um, if you look into it and you look at some of the the Bolivian documents which were submitted to the UN process, what they asked for was 6% of northern GNP per year uh, for an unspecified number of years to flow to the south. So what that comes to for a country like the US is about 1.3 trillion. And if you look at the US, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, Japan, it comes to around 3.2 trillion US dollars a year, right? And they were very, very politically astute in how they framed it. They said, oh, so you're telling us that this is not affordable, but the U.S. spends a trillion dollars a year on its military. So you can spend a trillion dollars a year killing people, but you can't spend uh, a trillion dollars a year healing people, right? So they put it just like that. If it's put like that, uh, along with the numbers, then 
most progressives could get on board with it. And you have an immediate program for a total transformation in global power relationships. So it's very apparent, of course, furthermore, why folks don't want to discuss climate debt, including folks who are soft on imperialism or don't really want to discuss north-south developmental divergence. You know, there's going to be a quietude about uh, climate debt. And it's, it's, it's our job to keep raising the issue because... If, if we don't raise it, who's going to raise it? Definitely. And it's important to raise imperialism within the context of climate. Because just like you mentioned, I mean, like with the United States and it's, you know, a network of 800 some odd military bases and all of that. I mean, the impact there on the environment is just incredible. And so, you know, here in the United States, Max, I mean, we're in a state where, you know, a, a lot of people feel uh, demoralized and discouraged to an extent because of the convergence of a number of crises, the, the climate being one of them, along with uh, the issue of the pandemic and the, the economic situation and uh, so many other things. It can almost feel like uh, uh, the walls are closing in and, you know, uh, consuming the, the corporate owned media on its you know 24 hour cycle isn't necessarily helping. And so that to me sort of speaks to the importance, again, of really developing and building a movement that brings a lot of these issues together and showing the centrality of the capitalist system and these other things as really being a driver of a lot of the problems that we're facing on a number of levels. And it seems that um, absent that, uh, I mean, we may be in for a pretty uh, 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 hot future, to say the very least. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on this front, one of the issues that uh, tends to be neglected in climate conversations, especially northern climate conversations, uh, primarily because it's uh, the North is very urbanized, very industrialized societies, is that agriculture is kind of our skeleton key to unlock portions of the dilemma related to both virus incubation and related to global warming, right? This doesn't mean that everyone in the North should go be a farmer, although anyone wants to be a farmer should be warmly encouraged to do so. But it means that we have to understand the role of agriculture in regulating the human nature interaction, right? Because agriculture is kind of like a big blanket that uh, humanity kind of walks over and sits on and that's in turn sitting over most of the rest of non-human nature, right? Sitting on top of the soil, sitting on top of the subsoil, regulating the interaction of, of gases, regulating the water cycle, right? It's this big uh, blanket or this big membrane, right? We have to, so we have to take care of it, right? It's the biggest, it's the, by square footage, by square mileage, it's the biggest production process on the face of the earth, right? We don't necessarily always think of it that way, but that's what it is, right? So we really have to take care of it. We know that uh, you know, if we if we rely on these types of concentrated animal uh, feeding operations, if we if we rely on uh, genetic clones, which is very much the case in uh, large portions, especially of northern animal agriculture, we kind of set up a petri dish for the incubation of these viruses that are then able to mutate and go on to humans and cause uh, epidemics or pandemics. Right, and it's also in terms of. Uh, in terms of agriculture, right? Agriculture is currently a significant emitting sector, and there's no reason it should do so, right? Healthy agriculture stores uh, organic matter in the soil, and that includes uh, carbon, uh, you know, stowing carbon dioxide into the soil, right? And therefore, we should be encouraging 
sustainable and or the term that's now used is regenerative, although this is uh, a freighted term because it's often associated with kind of uh, white and sometimes racist agricultural movements. But we should be focusing on kind of agroecology and sustainable forms of agricultural development, both in the South, but also figuring out how to change our northern agricultural systems so that they're not any capitalist any longer, so that they are actually using far fewer no pesticides, so they're not using these chemical inputs, so that they preserve the soils, so that they draw down carbon dioxide, the limits of which we don't know, which is crazy to think about, right? We don't know. We know a lot of carbon dioxide can be drawn down. We don't know if it is uh, 10% of the excess over the safe limit that's currently in the atmosphere, or if it could be 70%, right? But no one debates that it's a significant part of the solution. How big a part of the solution is it is something that remains to be figured out. And it's very telling that people don't talk about that, but talk about these big vacuum cleaners powered by nuclear energy that are somehow going to scrub carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And shock of all shocks, right? This is the same technology that the oil companies are using uh, in order to improve the, you know, to pump, uh, to, to, to pump the recovered carbon dioxide into their wells to kind of improve the extraction. And if it's developed to a, a sufficiently advanced extent, it allows them to keep on burning their oil forever, right? If this technology really develops, it could, I don't know, but if it could, then they can just uh, keep burning uh, the entire oil and coal reserves uh, until they run out, which they'll never really run out. Uh, and then we, then they're right. We don't have to actually change very much. So, uh, you know, there's a reason we talk about some solutions and not other solutions. And this is very much an effect of power relationships. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Max, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how the U.S. military sends the poor and working classes to die in its wars. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Walter Smolarik, a Philadelphia-based journalist and activist, Globetrotter Fellow, and the editor of Liberation News. Walter, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Absolutely. And Walter, uh, the Washington Post is reporting that the George W. Bush administration actually hid the truth of a Taliban attack that took place on 2007 that actually targeted then Vice President Dick Cheney. Uh, The suicide bomber killed 20 Afghan laborers, uh, along with uh, two Americans and a South Koreans who were assigned to the International Military Coalition. This is all part of the uh, uh, Afghanistan papers that exposes a, a lot of this stuff. And, you know, Walter, of course, in the United States, there's a culture of valorization around the military and military service and of supporting the troops And that if one uh, critiques uh, U.S. foreign policy, then in reality, you're disrespecting uh, the sacrifices that America's best are putting forth. This is what we're all taught to believe. But you recently published a piece uh, with NewsClick entitled 
Twilight of the 20-year occupation of Afghanistan. U.S. soldiers sent to kill and die for what? And it really touches on the reality of this because in truth, this country only cares about the truth insofar as they can be exploited to further the interests of imperialism. And although the formal draft in the United States ended years ago, there is still kind of an economic draft that uh, compels a lot of people to join the military, whereas they otherwise might not. So I was hoping you could sort of tell us uh, about just what this economic draft is, and I know you were able to interview people uh, throughout your piece that sort of spoke to this experience, and how does that contribute to the forward motion of the U.S.'s never-ending war machine? Yeah, I, I think this is a really important uh, piece to, to understand here. Um, yeah, it punctures a lot of those militaristic myths that um, people in the United States are taught from, uh, I mean, from very early childhood, actually. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I had a chance to talk to uh, Mike Davis, who was an enlisted soldier uh, during the war in Afghanistan, uh, who was injured in Afghanistan, um, and is now uh, an anti-war and, and socialist activist, and Danny Serson, who is um, the the Eisenhower Media Network now, but he was a, uh, a captain in Afghanistan, so uh, a, a junior officer who was, you know, an officer, but um, still part of the, the front lines of the fighting. Um, yeah, very, very interesting perspectives there. I mean, to speak to the point that you're raising about the economic draft, I mean, I think, you know, in Mike's story that, that really came through, um, you know, in his case, he was, um, you know, he grew up in, in rural Washington state, um, you know, a, a place that's uh, dominated by agriculture working on the on you know farm labor is extremely grueling um you know people didn't have educational opportunities there was um you know uh like a, a serious um you know the the opioid epidemic hit really seriously um you know people were uh you know as, as people are in many different difficult and desperate situations uh turning to alcohol too and so you know, in this type of context where the, the system that exists is not giving you any options, not giving you any future, uh, what he was explaining to me in this article is that, like, you know, the, that's where the military swoops in, and the recruiters are very intentional about doing this. They know who to talk to. Um, they, they know where to, you know, essentially find kids who are, uh, who are the most vulnerable um, and, and who are looking for any way to get out of the, the current situation and the circumstances they were born in. And so, you know, there's a way to kind of package the army as, as being that, uh, even though it involves, you know, killing and, and dying or getting horribly injured um, because of, you know, all this sort of pre-existing propaganda that we're just like bombarded with nonstop. Uh, that can creates this combustible mix where they're able to get uh, working class kids in big numbers to sign up to fight in these wars that are just completely brutal and unnecessary and futile, uh, and really just go to, you know, pad, pad the pockets of the military-industrial complex, other corporate interests that benefit from the wars, but um, also, you know, I thought this was significant too to to sort of pad the resumes of the senior officers in the armed forces who who don't really care how futile or dangerous or you know whatever the war is. Uh, they they don't care about that. They just care about getting you know a good combat deployment into their belt. So that that sets them on a on a trajectory for future success in their military career. Yeah, and that difference in class character between the uh, enlisted soldiers and the officers 
actually existed or, you know, revealed itself on the battlefield, in wartime, in the theater of operation, as they call it, in Afghanistan. So, I mean, what was that like for the soldiers who were enlisted, these poor working class folks who saw going into the military as the only option they had for anything decent in life? What kind of experience did they have dealing with non-commissioned officers and officers who were not only not working class, but a lot of them had degrees uh, and just really didn't relate to the people they were supposed to be, quote unquote, leading at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure, that's something that I found in, um, in interviews for the article, that uh, a college degree was really like the marker of class. That was, that was kind of like the proxy. Um, like you you knew uh, if somebody was an officer and listed soldier, um, you know, nine and a half times out of 10, you know, by by looking at whether or not somebody uh, had a college degree or not. And so, yeah, I mean, I think all of the kind of like, uh, you know, there's like cultural components to class too, right? And, you know, the arrogance that goes along with, uh, you know, those who are born into, you know, wealth or at least, you know, a significant amount of material comfort. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, in, in the day-to-day relations, you know, I think that was a big thing. Um, and then, uh, I, you know, that that also translates into... I think like regard regard for your the value of your life. Um you know, the 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 things like what practically soldiers were sent to do in Afghanistan, I mean, was so kind of mindless and dangerous. Like uh like Mike Davis was saying that, you know, essentially he just walked around the same route every day, looked for bombs, you know, one of which eventually, you know, blew up his legs and he had to, you know, go go back to the US and recuperate. Uh, and and you were just there as essentially a show of force. You know, you weren't accomplishing anything. You know, by the end of your year-long deployment, maybe they just feed the area anyway. Uh, and you know, the exact same thing happens every day. You go out, you walk around, you get shot at. Maybe a bomb goes off, and then you go home and and you know you go back to the base and, and do it again the other day. Uh, and and that's you know completely it's a completely ridiculous thing to do to waste to risk your life to do uh, if you're an enlisted soldier. Um, but you know, if you're an officer, you're not just um, going for like one deployment or you know enlisting for a couple years to kind of get your life back on track. Maybe to get uh, you know the GI Bill to pay for your college education. You're there for the long haul. You're there for you know maybe maybe 20 years would be a, an average career length for an officer. Uh, but when you're an officer, you uh, only get, you know, maybe if you're lucky, one combat deployment, or, or if you're really lucky, you know, a couple of combat deployments. And throughout your whole career in the officer corps, the top brass, right, you know, the, the colonels and the generals, uh, when they're considering you for a promotion, are, are going to look, I mean, at a number of things, but one of the really big things they look at is your, your combat deployment record. And so if your unit did really dangerous things if they signed up for missions that involved lots of fighting, um, you know, lots of casualties, that that actually looks good for you. You know, it, it seems like you, you really got a lot of experience in your combat deployment. You can be trusted with positions of responsibility in the future. So, yeah, I mean, the very lives of, you know, the working class kids who, who uh, are uh, essentially victim to the economic draft. Uh, there, it's it's just cannon fodder. I mean, it's just it's just completely expendable 
in terms of the uh, you know career prospects of the people who go on to be the the top Pentagon uh, brass. Yeah, it's pretty sick because we're talking about people's lives and people's bodies being used to pad folks' resumes, basically. And it's pretty wild. And um, Michael Davis, who you spoke to, was talking about, you know, how, you know, the the the, the real impact of uh, this class difference between the enlisted and the officers, because because they were degreed and were educated uh, and had that sorts of things, there was this air of intellectual superiority and bad decisions were made that actually got people hurt. And in your piece, Walter, you also talked to uh, Danny Surgeon, who is someone I really encourage people to look up. He's a writer and an organizer. There's a lot of stuff with uh, antiwar.com. And he's an interesting guy because he was uh, a captain commanding the U.S. Army and and he is someone who went through, you know, West Point, like an elite military school, uh, currently is the director of the Eisenhower Media Network. And he was talking about how at a certain point he got injured. I think you were alluding to this a little earlier, Walter, and later was recovering at Walter Reed National Medical Center. And he saw that the area that they were supposed to be protecting had been ceded to the Taliban. And so he's like literally laying in the hospital wondering, well, then what was the point of us even being there? And so it's like in that moment, the, the, the futility of it all just sort of comes crashing down. And just like the big lie about this amazing, you know, valorous uh, patriotic duty it is just so deeply exposed and sort of the real cynicism of how the military industrial complex just grinds humanity in this way, I think just becomes so clear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was really interesting to, to talk to Danny because, you know, by, by virtue of being a captain, he, um, you know, he was, he was in the thick of this, right. Um, and, you know, he, his, his behavior was substantially different than kind of other officers of his rank. But, but I think even maybe even more interesting than that, by virtue of his rank, he was he was exposed to the like true top top brass, like the colonels and, and maybe even some of the generals who are like actually managing the war at the top level, and and you know sort of uh, was able to talk a little bit about how how they talk and how they conceive of things. And you know he said you know they speak in platitudes. Um, they're kind of you know it it it's kind of seems like you would be talking to a corporate PR guy, you know. But but the thing that they're selling you isn't like toothpaste or soap. It's like uh, a war that hundreds of thousands of people die in. So yeah, I mean, just super surreal on that front. Um, you know, you know, another thing on, on the point you raised about, you know, the, the futility of the war and how people who are sent to, to fight and got injured must feel about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's, it's, I think, been true throughout the, the entirety of the whole war. But, but I mean, imagine, especially now, um, you know, the Taliban has captured six provincial capitals in, in four days. Um, you know, they're, uh, it seems like they're likely to capture more. And the, the, the United States, I mean, a lot of analysts are saying that it's, it's likely that the United States will, or maybe already has just come to a political arrangement with the Taliban. I mean, that's, that's clearly what their end game has been. And they might not even get that, but, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they could have had a political arrangement with the Taliban, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. They actually could have done that at the very beginning of the war in 2001 and not invaded at all because the Taliban was actually willing to give up Osama bin Laden. Uh, you know, they just wanted assurances that it would be tried in, in Islamic court. He could have been extradited to Saudi Arabia where he would have been certainly executed, right? Like like this, this course of action that the United States is now uh, following um, – could have actually averted this entire 20-year-long bloody conflict 
Um, but yeah, I mean, here, here we are 20 years later, every year the politicians would say, you know, we just need a few more troops in there. We just need to uh, bomb a few more cities. We just need to stay there for an additional year. Uh, and, and that just went on over and over and over again in the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration. Um, and, and now here we are. And I, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I think there's something to the argument that people are making that, uh, under the Biden administration, they were just like, okay, fine. We'll, we'll come to some kind of, uh, you know, agreement with the Taliban secret or not, where, you know, they'll take over the country, which seems inevitable, and then some core U.S. interests will be preserved. Um, yeah, unbelievable how it ended up shaking out. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, just today it's being reported that the Taliban captured the provincial capital, Farah, in, in the southwest. And so just wild how this continues and definitely tragic for all those involved. But we thank you so much, Walter, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, the editor of techforthepeople.org. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, as always, great to be back. Thank you. Absolutely. And Chris, we know that Apple is a company that often claims that it places a high value on privacy. But there's been a development here where it seems that Apple is actually trying to redefine what it means to violate the privacy of its users. And I know you've written about this in a piece for techforthepeople.org. So I was hoping you could sort of break down just what is Apple doing here and what are the implications for folks' privacy? Sure. So Apple last week announced three changes uh, that are going to come to all of its devices, pretty much watches, phones, iPads and and Macintosh computers uh, later this year with some software updates. Um, We'll start with the easiest one that's not super uh, it's not really controversial, Um, but all all three of these are focused on CSAM or child sexual abuse material. Uh, the first one is that just if you search uh, or use Siri to ask about this kind of material or what to do in this situation, it's going to give you some advice on how to uh, how to get help. Uh, either if you were the victim of it, or you're you know you someone in your family or someone you know has been a victim. That's that's fine. That's that's you know that's normal. Uh, and they do that for domestic violence and some other things. The real other problems, the other two features that they're going to be introducing are real privacy issues. One is that if you have your phone or iPad set up to store the pictures that you take or that you save on iCloud Photos, which is Apple's you know, cloud storage, um, your device is automatically going to scan them against a database that is uh, maintained by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, uh, which is the only organization in the country that actually you know, can legally maintain these types of images of child abuse. Um, 
Now, that might sound, you know, okay, we got to stop CSAM. We got to stop child abuse, right? And that's a great sentiment. The problem is the way Apple's doing this. They have done this in a somewhat privacy-conscious way, and they have a very long technical uh, document on their site that outlines it. And it's really, you know, really interesting in how they've done it. But it still contradicts their longstanding, you know, marketing commitment to privacy because they're going to be scanning content on your phone before uploading it to their servers. So. The big concern that many of us have here is, are they going to add or could they add uh, any other types of content to this list? Now, let's be clear. They're not going to be downloading these images to your phone. Um, the way they compare them is by creating a, a kind of numeric representation of the image. Uh, so this is not going to be on your phone. Um, but it's still opening up the, the idea that Apple could, you know, at the request of a government uh, or, you know, anyone uh, or at the order of them, start scanning for other images, maybe from protests, maybe uh, of images or PDFs of content, uh, you know, books uh, that are that are deemed unacceptable. This, this is going to cause or could cause, you know, some real problems for people. The third thing they're doing is nudity detection in messages. So if you have an Apple family account and you're parents uh, or the other people on the account have said that you are the child and you are under 13. And there's no verification for that, by the way, right? And, you know, the owner of the account can just go say, this person is under 13. They're going to start detecting whether or not, you know, whether you're receiving sexually explicit photos. So, for example, nude selfies through iMessages. Um, and if you are, and if you choose to view or continue to send that message, it's going to actually alert the parents on your account. So again, this sounds, sounds like it's okay. Sounds like you're protecting children, right, from predators. But ultimately, this could actually get, uh, get kids in a lot of trouble, particularly I'm thinking, you know, of young queer kids. Right, who often you know are, are trying to evaluate and figure out and identify their own sexuality and gender, um, and if they're in extreme, you know conservative, extremely you know religious households, uh, there's nothing stopping a parent from saying, "Oh, this person is under 13," and so I'm going to be able to monitor all of their messages and get a notification if they're looking at this kind of content. Um, again, it's the idea that Apple is going to start doing this on. On, on our devices, the ones where they say, they've had billboards actually that, that say, what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. Well, that's not necessarily true anymore. Um, Apple and the, uh, you know, and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children have really doubled down against the criticism here too. They have been saying that, uh, you know, this is, you know, something that we absolutely need, um, you know, that, that they have taken privacy into consideration. And then they have gone and said, we know that the days to come will be filled with the screeching voices of the minority. That's referring to people in the privacy community who are concerned about the way that these features are being implemented and the potential for abuse, not just now, but also in the future, if political winds shift in the wrong direction. So there's been an open letter uh, as of this morning, well over 6,000 people have signed it. Um, I myself have signed it, calling for Apple to end the deployment of this technology and to reaffirm their commitment to end-to-end -end encryption and just to our privacy in general.
Yeah, you know, they always, they meeting the tech companies, they always come up with these wonderful new ideas that are supposed to protect us and frame the violation of our privacy in in that kind of thing. Well, we're doing this to save children. We're doing this to help women. We're doing this to, you know, to stop this bad thing from happening. And, and Chris, while those things are good, I, I feel like, you know, this if Apple does this, and this is, you know, why, certainly, I, I also encourage people to sign on to the letter if it's available for people to sign on to, that I don't trust Apple to stop with just a few devices, with just the iPhone. I, I, it's a slippery slope kind of situation. I feel like if they can get, uh, get away with putting it on the iPhone, they'll start installing them into their Macs. Uh, it won't just be phones. It'll be tablets, too. I mean, I, I mean, I hate to be paranoid, but is it more of a slippery slope or is this really just like the beginning of a huge avalanche of changing computing and privacy in computing as we know it? Sure. I actually agree with Aral Balkin, who started the uh, the petition. He says, this is not a slippery slope. It's a cliff edge. Um, in particular, the detection that they're going to be doing in messages, that can't be obviously based on a predefined list of content. They're using machine learning uh, for that to detect nudity. Now, we already know the nudity detection algorithms um, are extremely problematic. Back in 2018, the social media site Tumblr um, had a policy they were preparing for to be sold to uh, another company. Um, and they, had, they said, okay, we're not going to allow nudity or things that are just you know, too sexy on our site. But it triggered all of these false positives. Uh, you know, there's an example from the Electronic Frontier Foundation where it said there were pictures of boxes, hangers, flamingos, a Louis Vuitton bag, for example, that were flagged as sexually explicit images. Um, now, it's been a couple of years. The technology certainly has improved since then. But as we talk about all the time with facial recognition and other types of machine learning technologies, uh, you know, we can't trust these black box algorithms. We can't see inside them. We don't know what they are. We can't audit them. But now they're going to be running on our content. And in fact, they already are. That's how your phone knows. You know, it can identify the people in your photos if you've got their photo, you know, their contact information. Yeah. You know, what I hate is when um, I'm looking up a restaurant or some that I want to order food from and the little thing says, you were last here a month ago. It's like, you know what I mean? So it's just understood about how these uh, things are sort of tracking us. And, you know, switching gears, Chris, is another thing that I wanted to touch on with you. And this issue of Zoom uh, agreeing to pay $85 million in claims that uh, it actually lied about its end-to-end -end encryption and gave away uh, user data without its consent. And I was hoping you could tell us more about this, because, I mean, Zoom is something that has become uh, very important to a lot of people in the social distance era of uh, the pandemic. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of felt bad for a little bit for Zoom at the beginning of the pandemic. They were, you know, popular, but certainly there were many, many other services people were using for those who needed to do video conference. And then, of course, you know, the pandemic happened and things really just exploded. Uh, Zoom, you know, users went, you know, just through the roof and so did their profits. Well, the problem was Zoom was telling us that it was encrypted, that they weren't sharing information. 
And it turns out that those things were not true. Um, and so if you're a Zoom user, you might be able to get 15 or $25, uh, you know, because of this, um, you, you might be able to, you know, get into that, uh, that proposed class action settlement. But it's also forcing Zoom to open up and explain what exactly their privacy policies are, and to and they've already done some of this to actually implement real end-to-end encryption, meaning that no one, including Zoom, uh, no one other than the people who are on your meeting can see what's happening on your meeting. So the court basically says, and the complaint says, that Zoom redefined uh, end-to-end encryption, which you can't do. Just as Apple can't redefine privacy, Zoom can't redefine what end-to-end encryption does. So really excited uh, about this settlement, excited about the changes that Zoom has made, because I think it is here to stay. I think, you know, meetings that, uh, you know, that even after this pandemic is over, whenever that is, uh, the convenience of teleconferencing, of just catching up with people over video, of having meetings and, and gatherings over video, yeah, I think it's here to stay. And I think that, you know, the more we can force these companies to respect our privacy, uh, the better we're going to be. And that's why, you know, I say in the case of Apple and in the case of Zoom, we need to be loud. Definitely. And I mean, speaking of these big tech companies in the last couple of minutes here, Chris, I mean, there was also a leaked document that came out saying that Google actually fired dozens of people for what they considered misuse of data. I mean, what's going on there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the couple of years from 2018 to 2020, Google fired a number of employees, dozens, in fact, uh, who were accessing data that they should not have had. These are Uh, 36 or so employees um, who were looking through Google systems and doing searches and pulling information about Google customers uh, based on IP address or based on other uh, identifiable information uh, to say, you know, to get personal info about Google users. And of course, we are practically all Google users. Um, One of the examples they give is a Google engineer in 2010 who... uh, used his position uh, as a group, as part of a group that had access to these kinds of things. You know, not every Google engineer has access to these kind of things. To look at the chat records of a 15-year-old boy, they haven't really released the information about what these uh, 30-something people have done specifically, um, you know, to the public yet. And I'm hoping that they are, you know, letting the uh, the victims know here and alerting them to what has been accessed and who accessed them. I think that is a responsibility that Google absolutely has here. It really shows, you know, ultimately without end-to-end encryption, if things are not stored in such a way that only you can see them, and that is not the case here with these things at Google, then they are rife for misuse and abuse. And, you know, somebody is always going to have access to that information unless it is stored in and transferred in a, in a completely secure manner. And that's what we need. Again, we can't redefine privacy. Apple can't, Zoom can't, Google can't, and we need to demand better. Absolutely. I mean, that's really crazy. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome 
back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, August 10th, 2021. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to Give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can reach out. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's you, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. They can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But they can also hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at BAM necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating. They can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. They can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on their radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by John Jeter, award-winning journalist and foreign correspondent, radio and television producer, bluesologist and decolonizer, and author of the book Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sean. But as a fellow FAMU Rattler, I have to ask you a pressing question. What's on your mind? How much longer are we going to allow this heretic, this non-rattler, Miss Lukeman, to sit in on our conversations? <laughs> well, well look, Jackie, Jackie can't <laughs> help. Look, man, you know, you know what they say in church? Everybody ain't able. Hey, cool. you, you know what I, I'm saying? I love her. I love what her. I love her to death. But you know, she's right not. She's, everybody's not ready for this glory. You know what I mean? So yeah. I'm just saying. It's it's like that. I mean, you know, Jackie, she's from DC. I I've been told there's some other school around here that lays some uh a claim to being the mecca of black schools. I quite disagree. But no, I mean, no Jackie, defend yourself. Yeah. I, I don't lay claim to that school either. <laughs> <laughs> so she she's one of the good ones. She knows where it's at. You know what I mean? Shout out to UDC well, though. That, that, that I lay claim to that. In that case, maybe she could stay with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Woo. Yeah, but, uh, you know, John, uh, kicking things off here, there's been something that in the world of professional wrestling they call a swerve, which is to say an unexpected turn of events. And I'm speaking specifically of the resignation of New York Governor uh, Andrew Cuomo. It was pretty wild. I mean, he gave some remarks uh, earlier. I mean, personally, I was expecting him. I think a lot of people just sort of expecting him to, you know, further defend himself, further deny and apologize. But to basically say, you know, I'm not going anywhere. Well, I mean, he did, in fact, resign. And this was as the New York Democrats were sort of preparing to uh, begin the process of impeaching him. Uh, He said, in part, quote, This situation and moment are not about the facts. It's not about the truth. 
It's not about thoughtful analysis. It's not about how do we make the system better. This is about politics, and our political system today is too often driven by the extremes. And he says that he takes full responsibility for his actions. This is the part that really kills me. He said, in my mind, I have never crossed the line with anyone, but I didn't realize the extent to which the line has been redrawn. And so even though he's apologizing and resigning, he's basically saying, hey, my bad. I didn't realize hugs were bad, y'all. I'm just an old guy. Sorry, you know, sort of thing is kind of wild. And this, of course, him stepping down will clear the way for his lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul, to become the new governor of New York. I believe the first woman to hold that position. And, you know, I'm wondering what you're thinking about this, John. I mean, a part of me feels like in in one sense, Cuomo may be correct that, you know, maybe his political opponents within the New York Democrats are perhaps trying to maneuver to get him out and maybe trying to seize upon the allegations. But what gets me even more than that is that, you know, this means that officially Cuomo would have faced more consequences uh, for this than he would have, you know, actually killing the elderly, right, by uh, covering up the COVID numbers at the nursing homes. Now, sexual harassment, of course, is a serious thing, particularly when you're as someone as powerful as the governor of New York State. But I mean, we're talking about loss of life in the middle of a pandemic, and it's just, I don't know, it just it just feels like it's been treated as sort of secondary in this whole conversation. But those are just my thoughts, John. I'm wondering how it's striking you. It, well, very much the same way, Sean. I, I, you know, I've been thinking all morning about uh, the governor's resignation, and it, it reminds me of a couple things. One is uh, the late Kwame Ture, uh, Nee Stokely Carmichael, when he called the, the the West and the United States in particular an intellectual wasteland. And what I mean by that is that uh, uh, Governor Cuomo's defense, uh, such as it is, is just so impotent, right? Like. Uh, you know, in this day and age, you can't call 11 women liars. You just can't do it, you know. And so he he might have had a shot at continuing his political career if last week he had, take, he had got on the mic and said, look, you know, uh, I apologize profusely. I didn't mean to offend anyone. I'm a 63-year-old Italian male. We hug, we kiss, we, we, we even flirt sometimes. I realize that time has passed. I'm going to resign now and hope that the state of New York will forgive me. He might have had a chance to come back, uh, you know, at some point in the near future. His political career is over now, which, you know, probably won't make a difference to him financially. He'll probably go work on Wall Street or something like that. Yeah. But uh, these are not smart people. These are not smart people. And Cuomo should have known this was going to happen because he has no political friends. Cuomo is uh, it reminds me of uh, uh, the assassinated Swedish prime minister, Olaf Palm, who was assassinated during the Cold War. And they can never find out. Uh, at the height of the Cold War in uh, uh, 85, I think it was. And they can never find out who did it. And the reason they would always say is because everyone hated him. The United States hated him. Apartheid South Africa hated him. The Russians hated him. Israel hated him. Cuomo is the same way. Everybody hates him, although not for good reasons. He's he's on the wrong side of everything. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, if we had a country that was more engaged with reality, Cuomo would have been forced to resign a year ago for basically uh, his responsibility, his culpability in the deaths of, I don't know how many nursing home residents it was was attributed to his uh, criminal policy. But, you know, it's almost like getting Al Capone on tax evasion. However we can get him out of there, we'll take it. 
Yeah, and, and it's wild to me, the people who I'm seeing who are, are celebrating Cuomo resigning, John, because, I mean, it, it's not like I, I wanted the guy to stick around. I'm glad he resigned. Um, and and, and I, I agree with you that there is an element of this to that, that is just like, you know, however he has to go. OK, fine. But it's wild to me. I mean, absolutely mind bogglingly wild to me that folks who voted for creepy Joe Biden. Right. Are celebrating. Oh, look, they got rid of creepy Andrew Cuomo for being a creepy, handsy old dude who. And I, and I just I just feel like, John, this is another one of those examples of the lack of logic in the liberal logic kind of ecosphere. It's just it it is it is blowing my mind that that's happening. But also people are like, hey, look, now we've got the first female governor of New York and she was his lieutenant governor. So she was there when all of this was happening. <laughs> so I, I I, just, I I don't even know what to say about these folks right now, John, other than liberal logic isn't. It, it, it just ain't. It don't exist. I, I, think, I think every adult in the United States should read Amakar Cabral. Tell no lies, claim no easy victories, right? I mean... There's so much that we could learn from Amakar Cabral, right? This ain't, this is not even a step forward. It's a step sideways at best, at best. Oh, yeah, man, we we just, <laughs> we can't win for losing. Yeah, that's a fact. And, you know, Chuck Todd, you know, the, the venerable Chuck Todd uh, <laughs> has said that actually Cuomo's resignation has actually drawn attention away from the infrastructure bill. The much vaunted uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill that has been the cause for celebration for some. Uh, Mr. Todd believes that, you know, this is uh, taking some of its shine, stealing some of its thunder. And I'm wondering what you think about the sort of uh, the infrastructure piece in general here, John. I mean, this is a trillion dollar deal, right? Quote unquote deal. And the Democrats, per usual, absolutely knock themselves out to uh, strike a deal with Republicans. And I mean, you know, it's I think par for the course to see sort of what's not in this as as much as what's in it, because something that has already characterized Joe Biden's presidency, I think, up until this point is sort of him, you know, having these things that may basically sound good. I mean, they could go a lot further, but they basically sound OK. But by the time he gets through wrestling with, the, uh, you know, the Republicans, all the good stuff gets taken out of it. And we're supposed to feel good about this compromise. I mean, it's exactly like how Tariq Ali described things in his book, The Obama uh, Syndrome and things like that is to where it's like you, you basically make the actual good thing seem as though it was never realistic to begin with. And then the compromise seems like a thing that you should support. And uh, I mean, you know, th this uh, and people are uh, lots of people. And really, when I say people, I think I mean, you know, the, the, the media apparatus in this country is saying, oh, man, this is such this is a much needed win for Joe Biden, it'll really put some wind in his sails because of everything happening with COVID and, and the economy and, you know, and so on and so forth. And I mean, I guess I just don't see how this could really be spun as a victory, given that it just doesn't seem like that substantive of a piece, even though it's a trillion dollars. But I mean, what are your thoughts? Uh, again, Sean, exactly the same as yours. We we uh, the media uh, is, has, is has such an investment 
in uh, glorifying and valorizing Joe Biden. And the truth of the matter is, he's not any better than Trump. And in some ways, when you look at his militarism abroad, his saber rattling uh, towards Russia right now, which is uh, really frightening, and there's no sort of uh, reporting about it, but he, he might even be worse than Trump, right? And so this this infrastructure bill is a perfect example of the squandered opportunities. Now, this could be something that at least moves the needle forward, but uh, $1.2 trillion in this economy after basically 12 years of the Federal Reserve printing $85 billion per month for the major banks. Uh, let me say that again. $85 billion per month for much of the last 12 years, I believe, maybe even 13 years, uh, in, a, in a program called quantitative easing, giving low cost, almost free money to the banks to help them recover from the banking crisis, the real estate crisis, which they caused. This $1.2 trillion is, is, is like rearranging the deck chairs of the Titanic, right? It could have done some good, though, even with that meager amount. And I'll give you an example. Now, I'm not, maybe this is in there and I just haven't read it. The press hasn't reported it. But, you know, one of the challenges for African Americans is we're going to have to be really, we're going to have to outwit our adversaries, right? We're going to have to be imaginative. <clears throat> Imagine if that $1.2 trillion, much of which is spent on bridges and roads, what if Joe Biden had said, okay, so 12%, which represents the African American population, 12% will be spent. Well, will be uh, committed towards African American contractors, African American workers. Um, that would be, you know, a go go quite a ways towards uh, redeveloping our neighborhoods and 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 uh, repairing the wound that racism has caused in this country. <clears throat> but there's no imagination. There's no sort of commitment to the truth. There's no real effort to help us dig from this hole. And so this. Infrastructure bill is just another example. I mean, we're going nowhere, and this infrastructure bill just doesn't come close to meeting the need that is out there. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, and the wild thing is, though, and I think this is something that I think we need to make clear for folks, there were some aspects of this infrastructure bill that the Biden administration did put in that would have done some good for working class people, for poor people, for black people. But here's the thing. I think because I'm a cynic and I don't like Joe Biden, but I just think it's true because this is politics. I think he knew that none of that stuff was going to be accepted by the Republicans across the aisle, that he made such a big deal that he was, you know, had to work with. So. The, the inclusion of those things in the initial draft of the bill was just there for political. It was just political yes. grandstanding. It was just yes. like, see, look at what I'm trying to do for the people. But yeah. the Republicans yeah. won't let me. But honestly, Joe Biden never wanted to do those things for the people. I mean, because he campaigned on saying what he wasn't going to do. Right. I agree completely. I agree. completely. I, I, I do believe that this was a cynical move you know, intended to sort of create that that, illu that e e illusion that there is a dime's worth of difference between him and Donald Trump. He never intended for the best parts of that bill to get through, just like he never intended to raise the minimum wage, which he campaigned on, uh, you know, or to create a public option. I mean, he's, he's in his, in just eight months in office, he's made a history of backtracking on pretty much all of his promises to working class people. And so this is all like a con game. It's all theater. And it has been, I think, really for, for, for the better part of 30 years at least, you know, 
this theater and the American people continue to sort of sort of digest it as though it's uh, a reality TV show uh, until they don't, you know, and I think that moment's coming very soon. Yeah. And, you know, that, that sort of reality TV re, uh, reality to be redundant, um, you know, is I think worth noting, John, because it is like a kind of hypnosis. Sometimes it can feel that uh, uh, the American people can be under. And I think that that's just attributed to the, the, the depth of propaganda that they're subject to literally on a nonstop basis here in the United States. And I bring up a lot on the show is that, you know, the corporate news media is on a 24 hour cycle. So it's like every moment of every day is filled with these ruling class messages just being drilled into the minds of the people in this country. And it's funny, you know, you know, people in the United States would swear that people in, you know, socialist or communist countries are just having, you know, state media uh, shoved down their throat all day, every day. When in reality, our collective consciousness is just being assaulted uh, almost nonstop to, you know, make us pliable for all of these things and, and to, 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 to play these games like they're making moves on our behalf and they're really trying, you know what I mean? They just, oh man, they're really trying to really make a change, but they just can't do it for some reason. And it's just, it seems like that's the excuse no matter what like the situation is. And if the Republicans in power, it's, oh, well, it's the, the mean old Republicans won't let me accomplish anything. That's why y'all got to vote us in in midterms and vote us back in, in uh, you know, during the next presidential election. And then, you know, when you have the White House, you know, like I mean, like Obama had the White House, the House and the Senate. And, you know, somehow he still wasn't, you know, supposedly not able to do anything. It, it's just so weird. You know, like during that period, I'm sure you remember this, John. It's just like, yeah, you know, Obama would do this and that. But, you know, those Republicans, they just they just he just right. can't do it. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like, well, if you if you have complete control over the executive branch and still can't do nothing, then, then what, what is even the point? You, you know, it, it's sort of like they sort of show the absurdity of the system itself by the narratives that they put out. And I tend to agree with you, John, that we may be advancing toward a point where this um, facade, this mirage that the ruling class counts on for the masses of people to buy into, I think will shatter. And then they may very well have a problem on their hands. Yeah, no, they have a problem on their hands now. And I think they realize it, which is why they sort of double down on this narrative, this very sort of narrow rigid narrative of one America, which everyone, I think, for reasons both good and bad, recognize does not exist. I'll give you a great example. I was listening to Chicago Chicago Mayor Lightfoot yesterday uh, at a press conference about the police officer who was tragically gunned down, murdered uh, by uh, a, a motorist in Chicago. And, um, I, you know, I don't think anyone wants to see something like that happen to anyone, even a police officer who, you know, historically have done great damage in the black community. But still, I don't think anyone wants to see that happen. But at the same time, uh, Mayor Lightfoot goes on and she's uh, on this press conference. And she says that, uh, you know, um, uh, we should, you know, the Chicagoans should thank the next police officer they see for, for their duty. And, uh, you know, the police are not our enemy. Well, in wide swaths of Chicago on the south side and the west side, the police are indeed seen as the enemy, right? And, you know, no one who remembers what happened to Fred Hampton at the hands of the Chicago police and their celebration after they shot him twice in the head uh, while he was asleep, no one's going to thank Chicago police 
for their service. It's just not going to happen. So we have these two trains running and they're on these tracks that are growing farther and farther apart. But yet we still pretend, or at least our political class still pretends, we're on the same track going forward. We're not. We're, they're, they're growing farther and farther apart. And pretty soon uh, we're not even going to be able to hear each other. And so the only way you can get someone's attention is to throw a rock, right? And, uh, you know, I just, I just see this as almost inevitable because the central fact of our public life in America is that since the 1970s, the state has become increasingly the guarantor of profits for corporations. I mean, think about that. That's not capitalism. That's fascist. The state says, no matter what you do, we will guarantee your profits if you are a big corporation or, more specifically, a big donor to our campaign. That's what's happened. That's uh, And that's what is never spoken about in our media, in our sort of public spaces. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by John Jeter. And John, you were talking before the break about that officer in Chicago that was shot and I don't know if you saw this, but um, there were uh, uh, some police officers, some Chicago officers who came to the hospital where a French was brought after being shot. This was the University of Chicago Medical Center. And uh, Lori Lightfoot herself showed up and they uh, turned her back on her when she showed up. And uh, Ald- Alderman Ray Lopez, who represents the 15th Ward, uh, said, quote, they turned their back to the mayor just as she has turned her back on the rank and file time and again. And, uh, you know, the Chicago Police Union President Ann Lightfoot, that's uh, this cat, Canton Zara. I think, I think that's like the super uh, pro-Trump dude. I could be tripping. I'm gonna look that up. But Either way, I think this just really helps sort of show the nature of the police as an institution, because if Lori Lightfoot isn't like pro cop, like I don't know who is. But when you talk about how deep the culture of impunity is that surrounds the police, anything that threatens their ability to hold the power over life and death is perceived as betrayal. That's how deep it's taken. And I see it all the time. Here in Washington, D.C., where our mayor, uh, Muriel Bowser, is is very pro cop and always wants to give them more money and supports them every single time the cops kill someone without exception. And yet, you know, when it's even suggested that perhaps some money be taken from the police to be put back into community resources, I mean, you would have thought that you insulted their mother just by suggesting it. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's how important this power over life and death is to the police. Is like if they're not just able to, you know, kill and brutalize whoever they want, you're acting like, you know, you're basically making it to where they can't do their job, which is saying a lot because they're admitting that that is their job right. to brutalize exactly. and kill people. Exactly. You know what I mean? And so particularly in this uh, sort of uh, George Floyd uh, era that we're in, John, it's just clear that, you know, you know, no amount of kowtowing to police is really acceptable. It seems that they'll own they're only really interested in like complete obeisance. Oh, no question. And I think it speaks again to the reorganization of American society. Never perfect. But, you know, in the 70s, when we had Marion Barry in Washington, D.C., and Coleman Young in Detroit. In the 80s, we had Carol Washington and all these black mayors who, again, not perfect mayors, but they challenged the police to treat the citizenry, uh, uh, many of them black, uh, most of them black in Detroit and D.C., many of them black in Chicago, to treat them decently and with respect and not to kill them if they weren't doing anything that was threatening. I mean, it seems like a very low bar to cross, but not even today's police officers want to do that. And, and I think this is what has to be said is that you have now black political officials um, who are in collaboration with the police and with, let's just be honest, the apartheid government of the United States and its satellites throughout the country in cities like Chicago. They're in collaboration with the white settler government. I don't know any other way to say it. You had this period of time where, or, or you've seen historically where cities become um, they, they sort of filter through different ethnic groups, different tribes, Italians, the Irish, even the Polish in Chicago, where they have an opportunity to sort of move up the social ladder. And when it came time for blacks to move up in D.C., in Chicago, in Detroit, and all these cities, that ladder was kicked out from underneath us, right? Uh, and, and, and very sort of violently so. And so we have this, this spectacle now of uh, the slave catchers, the modern day slave catchers, police uh, turning their back on black elected officials uh, who don't let them kill enough or don't let them kill without reproach. Uh, and, you know, Mayor Lightfoot is doing very, very little, uh, almost nothing really to rein in the Chicago police who are you know, some of the worst, I think, in the country. Uh, statistically speaking, they I believe it's the, the ratio is six point five. A black in Chicago, an unarmed black person in Chicago is 6.5 times more likely to be killed by a police officer than an unarmed white person, So, uh, which is twice the national average, I do believe. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we've just got this spectacle. It's all like a spectacle, really. You know, the, the <laughs> these white police officers turn their back on the black. I mean, that could have happened during Harold Washington's time, but it would have been for a whole different reason. You know, they would have turned their back because Harold Washington was really trying to crack down on these rogue police officers. So it's a, it's a spectacle. It's, it's fatal and tragic uh, and kind of horrifying, but it's also a spectacle. Definitely. We have a caller on the line here, Baltimore Charles. Tell us what's on your mind. Good to talk to you and uh, so forth. Just wanted to make a quick, uh, just two comments, if I could. Uh, on the uh, police um, killings uh, and uh, how uh, they remain unabated, even since the George Floyd killing, um, what uh, what do you surmise is the is the is the reason uh, behind that, uh, other than uh, just the brutality um, uh, in, uh, that's involved uh, uh, in uh, their actions? Uh, 
do you see a genocidal racial component behind that, a Francis Chris Welsing philosophy about the equalizer that she talked about in their police weapons, uh, a fear of genetic annihilation. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts. And the second point, uh, I'll get off here. I was looking at the analytics of the, uh, the loss of Nina Turner in Cleveland in that special election. And uh, uh, the figures, uh, uh, the voting figures were astoundingly low, um, something like uh, maybe 70,000 total votes out of 500,000. So it appears to me that, uh, you know, maybe the voters of Cleveland let Nita Turner down rather than the uh, political apparatus uh, of the Democratic Party. What's your thoughts on that? And uh, thank you for taking my call. Well, thank you, Charles. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, John, your thoughts? Well, on the on the first point uh, and Dr. Chris Wellsling's theory of genetic annihilation, I don't quite go that far, but I do believe I, I am a subscriber to uh, Professor Frank Wilderson's theory of Afro pessimism, uh, which draws on statistics that show that whites typically, on average, uh, draw a certain comfort. They are comforted by scenes of police violence against blacks, or in other words, their confidence grows measurably when they see blacks suffering or being killed by the police. I do believe there's something to that, that, that we're seeing now this backlash that's being heightened by this economic security. And whites, uh, many whites, not all, but many whites, I would even say most whites, uh, feel a certain, uh, feel the walls closing in on them. Because what they don't want is an even playing field. Even the liberals, they don't want an even playing field. They just don't. Um, and, and so, you know, they, I, I, it's almost like behavioral economics. And I do think that's part of what's going on. I don't, I don't go quite so far as, uh, Dr. Uh, Wellsling to say that it's, uh, genetic. I don't know that it's genetic. I think it's very much learned because I don't think you'd see the same kind of reaction, say from, uh, whites in, um, Argentina or, or, uh, um, uh, you know, some other country that that's not a white settler, uh, uh, arrangement uh, that goes back centuries. So I do believe there's something to that, though, that there's a backlash that we're seeing now with this uh, escalating violence against blacks. And I think you're going to see blacks start to shoot back, as we saw the other night in Chicago. Um, and as to the second point, uh, that's really interesting about Nina Turner. I, I have some theories about Nina Turner's uh, loss. Uh, not I haven't done the research, but uh, the fact that the turnout was low kind of uh, boosts one of my ideas, which is that Nina Turner, who I think uh, I would have liked to have seen elected, I think she was a far better candidate. Uh, I think she is a real progressive, but she does have a chink in her armor, um, which is when she was a state legislator, she supported um, charter school, the charter school movement, uh, was a was a very um, vocal supporter of charter schools. And I wonder if that didn't go to lower turnout, particularly among blacks, which I think that district is majority black. Uh, uh, because, you know, black people, you know, we don't, we're not often quoted in the media in any way that that is uh, um, reflective of who we really are. But we do tend to have long memories. And if you sort of planted your flag, raised your flag on the other side, we, re we tend to remember that. So 
I wonder if in spite of or aside from all the resources pumped into uh, Chantel Brown's campaign by uh, Israeli uh, political action committees and Hillary Clinton and the DNC, if also part of what resulted in Nina Turner's loss was her support for charter schools, which is, you know, universally panned by by black parents. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Colin, for that. That's a very interesting uh, anecdote about Nina Turner's election. I did not know that, but it kind of is consistent with my theories on why she lost. Jackie, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I think that we have to always remind people that, look, the cops are the foot soldiers of the empire. And the empire is an empire because of its hold on property. It commodifies property. It makes money off of property. And really, we're not just talking about land. Empire and capitalism commodifies everything. Everything is property. Um, Your labor is property as far as the empire is concerned. So, you know, the idea that individual cops have racist ideology, of course, some of them do. But as an institution, Police officers are indoctrinated to side with the empire. They believe their job is to protect the empire from these lazy surplus population folks who most of whom just happen to be black and a lot of whom are Latinx if they're not Republican, if they're not conservative and, you know, living right, so so to speak. So the ideology of imperialism and capitalism is woven into the function of policing. So regardless of whether police officers individually have racist thoughts, and yes, plenty of them do, and there's a part of that racist white supremacist ideology, even in the, the ideology of capitalism and imperialism, I don't believe that is the core function. I think we have a problem with individualizing these kinds of actions, right? We, we focus on the good cop, bad cop narrative where we're talking about a system that oppresses an entire group of people because that group of people, outside of being commodified labor, is basically useless to the system. So I think that's a more... And and I'm not, you know, I'm not disagreeing with Dr. Francis Cress Welsing's genetic survival theory. I think there's that that's that's proven to be kind of true, especially with a lot of conservatives who are very afraid of the browning of America and that kind of thing and, and doubling down on the law and order narrative. But that is not the impetus behind the system of policing and how it works and why it's used against us the way it is, whether the cop individually is white or black. Now, the Nina Turner thing real quick. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's voting is a weird thing in, in this country. Right. And, and it's hard for me to get excited about voting in a country in which people who vote for politicians pretty much don't get much. <laughs> you know, we don't we don't get a lot of return on that investment. And I do think it the, the whole charter school thing with Nina Turner was a big problem that people in Ohio did not forget. People in Ohio vandalized Betsy DeVos's yacht. <laughs> That's how much they hated her, the champion of uh, charter schools, you know, and school choice. So I don't think people forgot that Nina Turner was pro school choice. And, and I don't think they forgot either that 
you know, even though she said what she did about Joe Biden and the poop sandwich thing, which was absolutely true. It's like, you know, but the fact is she did endorse him. So I think people are generally kind of getting tired of hypocrisy coming from even progressive candidates. But that, but that's just my take on it. Yeah, you know, in terms of the whole police thing, I mean, I mean, this notion of genetic annihilation, I mean, that sounds like what Dr. Claw was trying to do to Inspector Gadget. You know what I mean? I mean, there's a material basis to these, to these questions. And uh, it, it's just what Jackie said. Police play a very uh, particular and uh, specific role within this white supremacist capitalist system. And there's a reason why they operate in black communities and poor working and oppressed communities the way that they do. It's to maintain that white supremacist capitalist order and to make sure that the exploited classes stay in their quote unquote place. Now, if those people are annihilated, well, then who are you finna exploit? Like they're pretty, they're important to that uh, equation. You feel what I'm saying? And it's the same thing with the Wilderson piece, because what we're really talking about there is like the psychological impacts of a centuries running settler colonial project that needs that racist violence to subsist. So it's not this thing that exists in the ether, like, you know, oh, we just uh, I, I get confidence from it. All of that is part and parcel in maintaining the basic arrangement of the capitalist system. And I think it's important to sort of uh, uh, bear that in mind. And so and that's the reason why we see like uh, when we were talking about Lightfoot earlier and the cops turned their back on her, they did. What's the name in New York? The same way. De Blasio. Right. Right, And who who would ever say that that guy isn't pro cop? (laughs) You you know what I mean? And so, you know, there's a systemic uh, root to all of this that I think uh, we should bear in mind uh, that can help to give some clarity here. But uh, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. John Jeter is here. And we were talking a little earlier about uh, John Cantanzaro, who's the the head of the uh, Chicago Police Union. We talked about him not long ago. And uh, yeah, it was this was the same cat who actually defended the people who stormed the Capitol, basically saying, well, you know, they weren't burning stuff like a Black Lives Matter protest. So basically it was <laughs> cool. And, you know, there's another thing that I want to say real quick, and I'm not trying to reverse our conversation here, but I was I was thinking about Cuomo uh, over the break. I, I haven't forgot about you weirdos that was calling yourselves Cuomo sexuals. OK, I, I have not forgot about that. You all are odd. But but you know but you know I think that's actually a thing we could speak on here John in the sense that we were talking just yesterday on the show about you know celebrity worship culture and I feel like when we take that to the political level there's certainly a celebritization of politicians that take place as well that meshes with that. Now, there are popular politicians, you know, all over the world. But when you look at I think the particular cultural 
aspect of how these things play out under American capitalism. And if we just if, if the masses of people just sort of sense a liberal politician doing something that they like, well, now there's like a there's a fandom form and all these sorts of things. And there also I have to say there's a particular way that people sexualize political figures that I just find strange. I mean, they did it to, to Cuomo. People did it to like uh, AOC. It's just like this weird thing. It's like ex-government person is bae sort of thing. And, and it's just out like, yo, man, it's okay to like them politically with like without right. like fantasizing about them. You feel me? And, and, and I don't really know uh, what that's about, but I feel like that's a part of this like political psychosis that uh, we're sort of subject to here in, in the United States because that is what we're told we should substitute instead of, you know, organizing or like real action. And then it makes it even it makes it more difficult to criticize those people because now you have to get out of the whatever hive and actually be like a, a, a critical thinking person. You know what I mean? And so and particularly as we continue to see the, this kind of institutional attack that we see on progressives like uh, uh, Nina Turner and others that we could name. I mean, they sabotage Sanders twice. You know what I'm saying? And so it's just wild, John, how we continually see the Democratic establishment just throw throwing everything and the kitchen sink at uh, people who who are just like a little bit better than they are, because we're we're not talking about you know, like revolutionaries, you know, these people aren't like, you know, Ho Chi Minh or something. Not at all. These are like liberal social Democrats. Right. But see, when you're in a country whose politics are as right wing as the United States, that, you know, that takes on a whole different color. And I do think it's noteworthy that we have like this element, even in the minority at this juncture in um, American political history. I think it says something about where political consciousness could trend. And certainly from the standpoint of an organizer, I think it sort of uh, can imply an opportunity to really be growing movement here. But John, how do you sort of, how important do you see it as sort of being us able to, you know, keep our head in the midst of this? Because I feel like there's so much um, smoke and mirrors that that are thrown up. So many like, and I don't like to, you know, you this is overused in a way, but like like distraction plays. You know, there are people who think that Every news story that comes up somehow is a distraction because they can't think about more than one thing at once. But I mean, I think, you know, you, you feel what I'm saying in the sense that yes. we're having things put up and say, well, no, you need to worry about this. When in reality, like the really important thing sort of goes unacknowledged. And I think, you know, the whole thing with with Cuomo and the nursing home deaths is just sort of an example of that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I I um I re- who was the was it was it Chris Matthews, the MSNBC host? who said of Obama that he he sends a tingle up my leg, which is just like, bro, keep that to yourself. Yeah. You know? <laughs> we don't want to hear about your tingling, dog. Right, like, come on now. Right, bro. Yeah, I've been a middle-aged man talking about, you know, what some other man does to you. You know, right. yeah, but I, I do think I do think there's a psychosexual uh, subtext to uh, our oppression. And I think it takes mm-hmm. uh, shape in two ways. One, I think, is uh, the residue of slavery, the afterlife of slavery, which, if you think about it, right, and I have to think about it, historians have written about this. Uh, the the plantation, the old Southern plantations of old, were run by the patriarch, and the patriarch is entitled to free labor from both slaves, uh, male and female, uh, and um, 
from his wife, his daughters, right? But he's also, when it comes to the women, he's entitled to their sex. That is his entitlement as the patriarch. And so you see throughout history, uh, sex as an assertion of power. I, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to be a prude and I don't uh, want to talk too much explicitly about sex. But uh, it seems to me like this whole Me Too movement was not a response necessarily to peop- uh, to the, the sexual libido, the libido of, of, uh, of, uh, of powerful men, but their need to assert their power over people. Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein and Bill Cosby. That was about power, not sex. And so you see that. Or, 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 or you can even take it, you can even be more sort of uh, immediate. And, and uh, you know, Rosa Parks got her start as an activist by helping women who have been sexually assaulted by white law enforcement officers and white mobs of men. She helped them find some uh, legal redress to the court system or lawsuits or however they could. Uh, and, and because it was that rampant. And so there's that. And on the other hand, I think there is this, and I was just talking about this the other day with a friend of mine, there is this sort of offering of sex as a material benefit in lieu of money, right? Like like that to the masses, I mean, you know, there's so much, uh, it, it's not, it, it's pornography, but it's become so mainstream that we don't always call it porn. So you see these ads on YouTube, for women basically saying, you know, that they're Asian and the Asian women, you know, have this advantage for men who are out there and they're single and they're lonely. And it's like the selling of sex almost as something because like you're not getting paid. Right. You're not going to get uh, compensated for your work. You might as well have sex, you know, mm. but it's, it's sex. It's sex as pleasure. Right. Not sex as joy, not relationships with and not with someone of the other sex or the same sex, whatever your preference is. In a in a prolonged relationship, uh, and, and just coincidentally, I had and having this conversation with a friend, we were talking about uh, the late author Gore Vidal, who was uh, gay and in a relationship, I think, for the last fifty years of his life with another man. And he famously said, I, "You know, to this day, I don't know if he was lying or not, but he doesn't seem like the kind of man who would lie about something like this." He said that the reason his relationship survived was because they didn't have sex. They had sex when they first met, you know. Kind of a one-off, and they never had sex again, and that was the key, he said, to sustaining their relationship. So I, I think you know, it's it's on the one hand, it's sort of this uh, assertion of power by the patriarch or people who see themselves as a patriarch. Now the other hand, it's this sort of uh, uh, payment, you know, in lieu of payment, almost like they give you a title instead of giving you a raise, right? Like you have sex, you have sex on TV, and everything is sort of seen in those terms. You know, uh, even if you think about Marilyn Monroe, I mean, what was Marilyn Monroe's real uh, appeal to a lot of men was that she she seemed like you might be able to have sex with her, but she didn't seem like a sex worker, right? I mean, that's, that was kind of her appeal. They saw this sort of innocence, but at the same time, possible accessibility for white men. So it's really very strange. It probably requires someone with uh, much... Uh, broader knowledge of human sexuality than I am, but it strikes me that uh, it is uh, there is a psychosexual nature to our oppression that takes the form both of an assertion of power and also this kind of uh, uh, payment plan. Like we, you know, we can't promise you much in the way of money, but hey, with any luck, you know, you might be able to get laid. Yeah, you know, uh, Jackie, uh, John's raising an interesting point here because I do think that uh, American culture and American society is highly sexualized. Certainly, I think the media 
is uh, quite that way. I mean, I think we could make the same argument with violence as well. And, and the point he made, it's like we're, we're, we're putting a mindset to where we feel like we should chase sensation, right? And I'm thinking about, I was, I was listening to a, another radio show, and a friend of mine was talking about a trip that her and another friend had, they, they, they went to Cuba. And they said that the Cubans that they were hanging out with were taken aback by how much they were drinking. And they were like, yo, you know, you, you Americans drink a lot. And they were kind of like, well, yeah, you know, because American society is kind of wild and crushes your soul. So you drink and narcotize yourself and do all these other things to keep your mind off of that. And it's kind of like that, that classic thing of, you know, uh, you're made to feel that you can improve your conditions. Therefore, you should numb yourself to those conditions. You know what I'm saying? And so it's, again, I think a part of that narcotizing sort of thing that sort of keeps people, it can keep people inactive. You know, people have emerged, you know, from it and broken from it. I mean, sometimes you can rally and sometimes you can't. But it, I just think it's worth noting that this country really puts you in a position where it almost, it almost sort of situates you or, or prepares you for addiction or to get caught up in, you know, this or that distracting thing or this or that sensation. Because if you do that, then like John say, you're not, you know, you're not thinking about so much. You're not getting paid that much. You don't have the coverage you need and all those things like that. So it's a part of, there's a real social sort of detriment that this system can have on people. And that I think extends to our, you know what I'm saying, political consciousness and how we view these ruling class officials, you know what I'm saying, when they do these things. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And that this is just, you know, the fascinating idea of the uh, uh, the, the the trend toward indoctrinating oppressed people toward escapism to deal with their oppression and the sexualized nature of even that. When we look at the way we look at entertainment, like this whole thing about you know, you you can't just enjoy a celebrity. You, you and and their their work and their art. You got to be a part of the hive, and and you know nobody can say anything bad about that person. And everything they do is just you know it's like you you put this person on this uh, almost uh, uh, saintly but extremely sexual platform. You know, but and we do the same thing with politicians. I notice that. You know, people are extremely to to I think your point earlier, what you were saying, uh, Sean, that it, it makes it very difficult. And I think John pointed to this also. It makes it very difficult for folks to critically look at politicians and what they do if their politicians are, quote unquote, popular. Right. If you have politicians who are like members of the squad and Look, they're they're very it's great that they were elected, especially in the the extremely liberal, extremely fascist climate in this country that really has always existed, that that economic aspect of fascism. Um, But it's really difficult to get people to look at their policies, their votes and their actions, because people are so fixated on, well, you can't criticize the squad especially folks like AOC. And a part of that is, I think, John, this very 
and I don't want to paint people as as like members of a cult, but it's just this like weird obsession with AOC and her youthfulness and, you know, her attractiveness and 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 that kind of thing. And and like you said, Sean, the the Cuomo sexuals, I I swear to God, I just didn't understand that. That was just. You don't need to be ashamed of yourself. I was just like, I, I mean. Before this, like just in general. <laughs> I can understand being attracted to power, but there's not that much being attracted to power in the universe for me. But I, but I mean, John, I, I, I feel like there is a very interesting connection here that we're trying to make between yet another reason that we are having a problem getting people to, to, to be in the streets to challenge this system because they have found this escapism in supporting these like almost like cartoon character folks who are supposed to be the good guys who are progressives. And we we just love them like they're our dolls and they're our favorite celebrities, but we don't pay attention to what they do. And I think that's a part of that narcotizing escapism that's of the intellectual variety that we deal with in politics that I think does have a sexual kind of aspect to it. I, I, no, I think that's exactly it. I, it. It seems to me there's something about the degradation of the language, which, of course, inevitably leads to the degradation of thought. I, I've been struck in recent years, in the last 10 years, really, on the, the level, the, the, the poor quality of statesmanship, of oration. You know, people sort of lauded Obama uh, for his uh, oratory skills. Well, you know, go back and look at Harold Washington speaking and mm. then come back, come back and, and tell me about uh, Obama's oratorical skills. I, I just don't see it. You know, he was competent at best and, and certainly better than most people there, but not good. Kamala Harris is a wreck. I mean, she's just terrible. That's not good. Uh, but I do think there's something about the language because we use language not for clarity, but to obscure. Right. So we repeat these things. Israel's right to exist. Well, yeah, their right to exist does not include them illegally occupying uh, another nation. You know, I mean, the two are not compatible. Uh, and so we use language in a way that is. Um, and so we and so we focus then on people's looks and sexuality. And I think that's I think I do think that's something that has worsened uh, in recent generations. I mean, I remember very clearly how uh, people, black people would always talk about what a uh, uh, sex machine, the notorious Big was, that women just fell over him. Well, that obviously wasn't because Biggie was particularly handsome. It was because he was talented and he was good with language. I mean, I remember in Detroit many years ago, a, a woman who I worked with and uh, nothing ever happened between us, but I remember once she used the word innervate correctly in a sentence, and I was in love. I was just absolutely in love, you know, but I don't know if that exists anymore. If people are attracted to ideas and language as well as the physical. I mean, I'm not trying to be a prude or, you know, some kind of, you know, nut job. I mean, obviously some people are attracted, some people are not, you know, uh, uh, physically. But still, there doesn't seem to be any space for this exchange of ideas that can sort of make us more fully formed human beings. That doesn't seem to be something that we use as currency anymore. Definitely. Well, you know, as it pertains to Obama and his speaking, there is a deep black uh, speaking tradition in the United States. He's not a part of it. But we're going <laughs> to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, John Jeter, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow, so we will see you next time. Peace. By Any Means 
necessary.